Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's roundup. Just a reminder that we are going to close all orders on the lag is real hat pretty soon within the next couple of days, definitely before the next podcast. And I know it's silly and I know not everybody shares my weird and twisted sense of humor. So it's fine if you don't think it's cool or funny or anything, but I certainly do. So if you wanted one of those, definitely grab it now. I'll have other merch coming up soon, but this is the final run of these. We're just going to kind of let that fizzle out and whoever was able to pick one up you know, you know what's up. But anyway, there's been a lot of really cool stuff happening this week. So let's jump in and see what's been going on. First up, Stiku recently posted a video that highlighted some HD packs that you could apply to NES ROMs for use in software emulation. Now I got to start right off the bat by saying this is not something that you could use with hardware emulation. So no ROM carts, uh, you can't do this on Mr. at least not without completely rewriting the game. So this is something that you should really count on for just software emulation. However, that is pretty easy to implement if you're just using a PC emulator. And I really liked how a lot of these different texture packs and graphics packs kind of brought the games to places that they, the developers probably wanted them to be, but that's kind of my opinion. However, my favorite part about this is it's 100% opinion-based and up to you if you want to use these or not, because most of these do not change anything about the games except the graphics. So it's the same gameplay. It would be the same latency that it would always be, whatever your personal setup is. So I think this is just a really great thing for people to try out. And I'd really love to hear people's opinions of which of these hacks are their favorites, which are their the, the definitive ones. Is this just blasphemy and you should never use it? Because they're all opinions, but I do value everybody's opinion. The only other thing I will definitely add is that Stika likes to put a lot of humor in his videos. I personally think he's funny, but you know, that's also preference. You don't have to. But even if you completely disagree with one of his opinions, he still presents all of these examples to you in a way where you could see the gameplay, you see the graphics packs, and you could make your own decision. I actually thought the Donkey Kong game didn't look too bad, but I also didn't try to play it. So maybe that's why Stika thought it was way worse than I did, because uh, maybe playing it, it's a distraction. But it's just a silly but perfect example in why these videos are great, because, you know, there's a couple of my friends that I know have the exact opposite taste in games that I do. So I'll always listen to their opinion, because if they're like, oh, I love this game, I'll probably hate it. And if they're like, oh, this wasn't really for me. I'll take note because I know I like opposite games than they do. So, you know, 
I just think of this stuff as totally positive and I want to hear your opinions regardless of what they are, but it's definitely a video worth watching and it shows tons of examples of tons of different games. And I certainly had my opinions on each one as I was watching. So hopefully you'll all enjoy it as much as I did. Speaking of ROM hacks, Billy Time Games just released patches for Sonic 1 and 2 that add a really unique feature. You gain abilities every time you get a Chaos Emerald. So this is something that really piqued my interest when I saw Billy post this on Twitter because I had loved the games growing up and I still go back and play them now and then. But my complaint against the Emeralds today is the same as it was back then in that I only have a limited time to play games. And as a kid, I also just wanted to be outside as much as I could. So if I only had a set amount of time and I knew I probably wasn't gonna make it to the end, I'd so much rather spend my time playing through the levels, learning the best progressions, just kind of enjoying the game. So I wouldn't spend so much time trying to get the Chaos Emeralds because I almost never beat the game. And once you got to Sonic 3, when the save game stuff was implemented into the original cartridges, that was a little different because you could kind of work at your own pace. But with this, now instead of just the only incentive being you get a better ending, now every time you get a Chaos Emerald, you get a little bit of an ability. So some examples are you get one extra hit point per life before losing rings. So like a free bubble once you've gotten the first Chaos Emerald. Um, after you get a few, you have faster acceleration. You could stay underwater longer. And then towards the end, when you get the, you know, more of them, five and six, you could jump higher. And in Sonic 2, when you get the seventh, you could get supersonic, which is awesome. That's, that's like such a cool feature that you've now earned. Because one of the things I always loved about games like Super Metroid is by the time you get to the end of the game, you're completely powered up and you're blowing through all of these sections so much faster than you did when the game started. Or at least, you know, you're, you've honed your abilities, you've practiced, and now you're really just, you have the tools to go through. But it's not like using a cheat code. You didn't just start out with all of that. You earned it as the game went on. So I really think that this progression is something that could potentially add a lot of incentive to getting those emeralds and to really kind of enhance the way you play the game. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but maybe it'll make the last levels too easy. I don't really know, but I love the concept behind it. and I really wanted to share it with everybody. But there's also a whole bunch of other stuff implemented in. I believe there's a save is also implemented automatically, plus a couple of quality of life stuff. So if you want to look at the full list of changes or download the patches yourself, just check out the romhacking.net links that are right in this post. But Overall, while I love ROM hacks, I don't often talk about them here unless I feel that they've added something very different and very special. And I think this one qualifies because whether you agree or not, it's totally up to you. That's cool. But I just thought this adds kind of a layer of complexity to the first two Sonic games that weren't there before. Now, I guess you could argue if save game implementations already there, would you need these extra incentive to get them? And I don't know. I'm looking forward to playing it soon to kind of just see for myself. But check out the post and the patches and, and kind of give it a try. This week's roundup is once again sponsored by JLC PCB. And this week, I want to show a new service that they've just started offering the ability to purchase flex cables and have those made through their service. I'm going to start this week's tutorial a little bit differently than I normally would because of all the times I've shown uploading different projects, I've never shown how to get files from GitHub into JLCPCB's website. So I'm going to be using the DC Digital's Flex Cable, which is open source and available right on Dan's GitHub. 
And in order to get these files down in order for use with JLC PCB, you're gonna to have to download each of them individually. And while I'll spare you the time of doing that here, the one thing you'll wanna note is that if you download them one by one, for whatever reason, most browsers will try to add the dot text to the end. And even if you just delete that and save it, it'll still show up as the dot text file. So you're definitely going to want to remove that manually no matter what. Now, I already downloaded all of them just to save us some time. But now that you have the files, you need to turn them into the Gerber files that JLC PCB can actually read. So there is a very great guide right on JLC PCB's website to help you do this. Um, I've already done that, so I wanna once again just spare everybody the time, but you basically open up KiCad, you open up the reviewers, you, and then you export the file in the exact way that JLC PCB's website shows you how to do. Zip those files up, and then when you're done, that's when you go back and you start this normal process that you usually would when uploading files. And that's basically it. It's pretty much just like uploading PCB designs. Just go to the website, log in, upload it, except now you're gonna to wanna to use Flex as the base material, not a PCB. It's obviously gonna be more expensive, but I mean, the whole point of a Flex cable is that it's a flexible design. You could then go in and decide all the standard options, like whatever quantities you want, any of the specifications. You could choose two colors. Uh, I think whatever the default is is what I would go for, certainly for any of these small test runs. And then there's a few other options that you're going to want to dig into depending on the project. Then, of course, if there's parts on these flex cables like there are with this one, you could add assembly to it. And that's what we're going to be going over next week. How do you finish the assembly and finish this PCB flex cable project using JLC PCB services? A new firmware was just released for the GameCube version of the MemCard Pro. And this is actually, I believe, the first public firmware release since the product started shipping. And as expected, it's got a whole bunch of bug fixes and improvements to it. So this is definitely something that if you've bought one of these, you might as well just load this one up just to keep it up to speed. It also has a couple of new features. Um, Over-the-air updates through the web UI are now enabled after updating to this one. So you should be able to update it after in, in the future, you should be able to just log in through the web UI to update. And then there's also a new database system that doesn't require the files to be present on the SD card anymore, which is pretty cool. The only thing to note about this firmware update is the first time that it boots, it's going to take a long time because it's kind of rewriting a bunch of stuff. But after that, it'll be just as fast as always. There's going to be no differences other than the upgrades and bug fixes, of course. And it's as easy as you could imagine. Just extract the extract the zip file to the root of the micro SD, um, write the bin file and overwrite the OS folder. And that's it. After it's done, it'll erase what it's needed, what's not needed and leave it the way it's supposed to be. So this one's kind of a no brainer. If you've purchased a MemCard Pro GC, you might want to just keep it up to date and download the, from the link right here. Shank just released a video about his Glowy which is a handheld Wii with a transparent case and LED lighting inside that changes color based on whatever's on screen. Kind of like the Philips Ambulight and some of the open source versions of that that have been available. And I've seen these things before and how they're implemented makes all of the difference. I think a lot of people, much like when you're messing with scan lines, a lot of people take a lot of time to get the lighting right, but it's really noticeable. Same thing when you're doing your scan line filters. You're so dialed in trying to make those good that you're looking at 
the scanline filter when in actuality it's supposed to be blending in with the image much like these LED lighting things. You're not really supposed to know it's there. It's supposed to just trick your subconscious into to seeing the image a little bit wider. And I think Shank nailed it. And I never even considered doing this in a handheld. I didn't even, it never even entered my brain as an idea until now. And the video was great. So, you know, typical awesome Shank video. The handheld was great, but this also kind of opened my mind as to the possibilities of stuff like this. Could something be made for original handhelds with clear cases? What about something like the analog pocket, you know, or, or any of those emulation handhelds? You know, could you get a transparent case and rig something like this up? And this does kind of make me want to go back and revisit what this would be like in a home theater setup. And Shank linked to uh, a video by Chris Majestic that kind of shows how to set up the Hyperion software and hardware, which is very complicated and time consuming. But I think when done right, it could be very cool. And I think it might even be able to get dialed into a point where you could help replicate projector flicker without actually having a flicker that hurts your eyes. But that's getting really complicated. And that's not the type of thing that your average person is going to spend an entire weekend wiring up and programming. Whereas going in and doing it in a handheld environment I think the community might be able to build some pretty nice packages of, you know, pre-built software and hardware to make it happen. So while uh, I loved Shanks video and nothing but positive things to say about Shanks Glowy, uh, I, the video just totally made my mind start churning and thinking about what other things we could apply stuff like this to. So well done, Shank. You entertained us and you made me think. Electron Shepard has recently started selling a GC video based internal HDMI kit for the Wii with two features that really set it apart from some of the other internal Wii HDMIs. The first is that it's compatible with all models of the Wii except the Mini, not just a certain model revisions. There's different install installations depending on your motherboard, obviously, but the fact that it has full compatibility is pretty important. And next, the price is $80, which relatively comparing it to other HDMI internal mods, that's fairly cheap. Obviously there's cheaper ways to get this, uh, to get HDMI from your Wii. And you might argue there's other better ways, which we'll get to in a second, but the, the bottom line is if you're looking for an internal HDMI mod for your Wii, this one's cheap. It uh, has the latest version of GC video on it and it should just be an excellent solution. And Voltar did a full installation video on it that I linked to here. Um, I also completely agree with Voltar's thoughts about how we need more basic HDMI mods, even if it only outputs the original signal of these consoles. That way you could just have this and let your scaler do all of the work, which kind of brings me to why you might want a digital to digital mod in your consoles. I know I've talked about this before, so feel free to skip to the next section if you already know what I'm about to say. But right now you could buy a Wii and you could get some good quality component cables, not some garbage ones you find in a bin for a dollar, but you get those HD retrovision cables for it. Um, you could find older used Nintendo or monster cables and hope they're in good condition. And you could do a lot with just that. You could then buy a cheap analog to digital converter, just a component to HDMI converter and use that. Quick side note, why do you need that if your TV has component video inputs? Because almost every single TV I've ever tested has far more lag through the analog inputs than the digital, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. But for a $20 ADC, why not just do it? Um, so right off the bat, you could have a plug and play version that's cheaper. However, 
you might want to run that component video through a scaler because if you already owned a RetroTINK 5X or if the Wii is your favorite console and you just want the best possible scaling solution available today, then I guess you wouldn't need an HDMI mod because you would be using the scaler in the RetroTINK 5X. You can get 1080p and up, you can get all of these different options and filters and stuff like that. However, as we start to scale to higher resolutions, the fact that when you scale something, you scale the whole signal is going to start to be a lot more evident. And what I mean by that is you don't just scale the digital image, you're scaling all of the analog interference that comes with it. And in most cases, nowadays with good shielded cables and a decent scaler, you probably don't notice at all. But as you start to get scalers that are 4K and whatever comes beyond that, all of this is going to start to make a much bigger difference. And you would want a true digital signal coming out of the console that never becomes analog. It's just digital the whole time. So then you could manipulate it any way you'd like with no worries about interference or filtering, low pass filters, stuff like that. It's just a true digital to digital mod. And if you get one of those, technically that means it's future proof. Because even if we go to 8K240 TVs or whatever, then you'll end up with a signal that could get passed through a scaler and it would be a one-to-one -one original signal. So I do think more simple, basic HDMI mods would be appreciated for other consoles. I think stuff that outputs 480p already, like the Wii and like the Make Megahertz HDMI mod that's out for that one, I think that's totally great. And while yes, right now you can have total plug and play solutions that are great, they work with no problems whatsoever. This is kind of looking more to the future. And anytime you have a true digital solution, you can do a little bit more with it with less side effects. So I guess that was just kind of a long explanation of why anybody would want to have an HDMI mod, especially when it's limited to the original resolution of maxed out at 480p. But I, I absolutely see a time where this is going to become more and more important. And people are going to really start to see the differences. But with all of the respect to anybody who makes HDMI kits for the Wii, at the moment, um, it's really up to you. Do you want to spend this extra money to have this installed? As Voltar showed in the video, it's a very complicated install you know, for a beginner. For an expert modder, this is fine, but for a beginner, it's a pretty complicated install. But then you never have to worry about your Wii again, regardless of the TV, the scaler that you get, you just have a full digital signal. Or do you want to just get some good cables and plug it into the OSSC, the Tink 5X, just a DAC or ADC, whatever else. Uh, and if you want more of an idea of what you could do with a solution like this, I did have the video on the Wii Duel that I did a few years ago. And it's obviously a different kit, a different uh, version of GC video, but it'll certainly give you a good idea of what to expect and some of the advantages of having a GC video solution versus direct analog out. But anyway, all the links to everything you need are right here in the post. The Haas Supergun, the home arcade system, is now finally back in stock. Version 4.2 is available for purchase, at least at the time of recording. And this is a big deal for people who want to play arcade machines through whatever RGB system they have, whether it's uh, RGB monitor, scaler, whatever else, video capture, because this is widely known as one of the best super guns ever made. And the creator is constantly tweaking it and adding new features. And I believe this version has the same sync and video protection, but also implemented the audio protection as well as a few other things. Um, the price is also $130, which is incredibly reasonable for something that gives you all of these different features, including button remapping. And I mean, just 
check out the, the full list of features for this thing. It's absolutely awesome. And it's been one of my favorite super guns to use. The only things to note, uh, you know, I'm going to try to make this for people who both understand how to use super guns and the general audience, but you have to get your own PSU, but it does come with one pigtail that you could wire it up. But obviously, if you have a custom PSU, if you want to make your own wires, you're going to have to kind of deal with that. Also, kick harnesses. So if you have console or arcade board consoles that use player three and four or things that have six buttons on them, like Street Fighter type of thing, you're going to need to get your kick harnesses either made or purchase them right from the store. So I have links to all of that there. You could get... Um, the Hass is the first link. The main store link has all of the different stuff like kick harnesses and wiring. And then there's a few different PSUs that people have been recommending for a while. So I linked to the direct pages so you could just look up where to buy them worldwide. Or if you're in the States, you could just buy the, the highest one from Amazon if you're into that. There are cheaper ones available, but for me, I just I always like to have all the extra amps possible just in case, which is almost surely wasting money, but it's 50 bucks as opposed to 30. So we're not talking about, you know, breaking the bank here on a power supply. So if you're interested in this, definitely check it out. If you're not at all uh, familiar with super guns and what they do, you should just know that something will always go wrong. And it's probably not the fault of the super gun. It's probably the arcade board that you're using. So, you know, people people who have arcade boards are probably all nodding right now. Like, mm -hmm. so if you've never messed with it, it's a lot more complicated than messing with consoles. But if you love arcades uh, and arcade boards and stuff like that, it's absolutely worth it. And the Hass and the minigun and a few others are all excellent, but the Hass has been my go-to for a long time. It's just has not been in stock for a while. So now's your time to grab it. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these, just kind of adding my thoughts when I feel like it. But if you want all of the details, please check out Lou's video and post here. First up, Mr. Add-ons is talking about making an RF adapter that would allow you to take the composite video output that's now been added to most Mr. Cores and just interface it directly into a CRT that only has RF. Now, this is a huge deal because you could still find CRTs completely free that are in mint condition, but they only have an RF input. And if you're in the middle of Manhattan or a big city, don't even bother. It's going to have so much interference, it's going to look terrible. But if you're just a little bit out into the burbs and you don't have a million wireless networks surrounding you causing interference, R R ugh, excuse me, RF and composite could look almost identical, if not identical. I posted a video a while back, Lou showed it in his video, showing the differences with the same TV, the same console, the same everything, but one was in my New York apartment, the other was just kind of out in the burbs in the storage area, and the difference was massive. So I love that this is a product. I really hope, you know, I hope that it's not just for the mister, because while I can't think of too many scenarios, I could definitely think of a few in which you might want to run composite into an RF only TV that didn't have a composite adapter. And of course, you could just get a VCR for free or cheap, something that eats tapes but still powers on. But I imagine this is going to be a fairly small adapter, not a giant VCR looking thing. So, you know, hopefully that's something that'll be be workable, but I'm definitely going to pick one up because I run into RF only TVs all the time. Um, Flandango released a new console core for the Bandai's Supervision 8000, also known as the TV Jack 8000, which is a home video game console from 1979. Flandango also released a core for Nichibutsu's My Vision game system, 
I'm sure I said that wrong. My apologies. Uh, which was a console that was only released in Japan in 1983. And it was dedicated to offering video game adaptations of board games. And just has a library of six games, but hey, that's pretty neat. Um, Hans Beyer gave an update on the Mystex project when I talked about last week when we did the interview. I'm still fired up about that. Uh, he's got an HDMI video and the scaler working on the Jurassic DECA board, which is basically just a nice way of saying the project is is evolving and now this thing's starting to really take shape. A very big update, SRG320 has just posted a large update to the Saturn core with tons of fixes to it. So while it's definitely not done yet, it's just awesome to see so much progress being made. But SRG320 is also working on a core for the Battletoads arcade game. And the unique thing about this was this is hardware that's only meant for this one game. So this is a lot of work to reverse engineer just one game, but SRG320 is an absolute badass and making it happen. So that's that's very cool. And I've never played that Battletoads game. That kind of looks really neat. I think I'd like to give that a try. Also, uh, core developer Rocky is starting to research work for a Kiki Kakai core, which is an overhead multi-directional shooter. And it's the game that also spawned the Pocky and Rocky series. So it's just the beginning stages, but maybe that'll end up in a workable core. Also, the work that Pramod has been doing for Dark will also include both the Williams Y and T unit boards. And a lot of the FPGA limitations have been solved, so now it's just getting the core to run on Mr. So if you want to look up the games that are available on those uh, Williams Y and T units, that's pretty cool. Now we're kind of opening up even more possibilities. The very big update from last week is that Robert Pipe's secret core that he's been working on is actually a proof of concept so far N64 core. So the N64 is not just up and running on the Mr. yet. However, Robert's trying to figure out a bunch of different ways to make it happen, including, uh, you know, I don't want to go too much into detail. Robert had an awesome post on his Patreon page about it. So if you're even remotely interested in N64 or Robert's work, please consider signing up for that. But the post detailed how he thinks he might be able to pull it off, even though at first glance, it might seem impossible. And Robert's history has proven that if anybody could do it, it certainly would be Robert. So it'd be interesting to see. And, you know, very often when I see stuff like this, I always think about what could come next. What else could be added? How could these things be improved upon? But Robert's already implemented that and been thinking about all of that for the PlayStation core. So I'm just going to sit back, keep my mouth shut and trust that Robert's doing better than I could ever do. So that's pretty exciting. Next up, Otego has announced a beta release for Haunted Castle, which is an arcade game set in the Castlevania universe, which is neat. I never played that one either. Looking forward to that. Um, Adam Gastonow has announced that they're working on a new core for the Tamagotchi toys, which were handheld toys that allowed you to take care of a virtual pet. So that's kind of neat. I, I vaguely remember those, but I, I'd be interested to see what the core looks like. And Wickerwaka has officially released the IRM M92 core, so you can get it just by running your favorite update script. And this has a bunch of cool games, including a game with one of the most fun names ever, Ninja Baseball Batman. Love it. Uh, Darren has provided updates to some of the Jalico Mega System 1 core. Scrolling seems to be working, and most of the tile and sprite systems done. And lastly, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles core is almost ready for a beta release. Furtech is just working on some SD-RAM access, uh, which is fighting during the intro sequence. So 
Uh, it looks like the music is the cause of that, which is also really exciting because Turtles is an awesome arcade game. So as always, thank you so much to Lou for keeping up with all of this. I sure as heck couldn't. And it's so nice to just have it all in one place. So please don't forget to like and subscribe and just go to Lou's channel and, and do all the things. I just received Crix's version two of the RGB blaster and all of the things about it that we found last time were fixed. It performs absolutely perfectly. It is a zero lag device. And it's just, if you want a plug and play RGB solution for Famicom or top loading NES consoles, this is definitely it. If you want a very short overview, check out the YouTube short or post I did on all social media. And I will go, I'll go over sort of in detail now if you want, but I just wanted to let everybody know if you already own one, if you already know everything about it, if you caught the live streams from the other days, just skip this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But if you want to learn more about it, here's the overview. The RGB Blaster is essentially a device reminiscent of a Game Genie that it sits between your console and cartridge. And it accomplishes essentially hybrid emulation because you're using original cartridges, it's EverDrive compatible too, of course, but then it's using the original CPU and motherboard. However, its onboard FPGA is doing its own full digital version of the PPU, the video output. So it's basically sniffing all of the signals that are going through the cartridge port in order to do this. And the output is excellent to the point where I've seen a few NES RGB kits installed in consoles that were still a little noisy, not because of the NES RGB, but because some mother motherboard revisions on Famicom and NES consoles are just inherently noisy. And I have a very noisy Famicom and I get crystal clear output from this. You could also have dual output, so you could have the original output of your console as well as use this, which I demoed a couple of times, and I think that's great for streamers because you could play via composite or RF on a CRT and stream via RGB. If you're insane, you could stack two of them together and get, <laughs> get two RGB outputs. I don't know why you'd want to do that. I had two here for testing, so I did it in the live stream just to do it. But it's also zero lag. And I proved this two ways. First, I used a high-speed camera and split the output to two CRTs and down to a thousand frames per second, everything was refreshing at the exact same rate. However, all the proof that you would need is that it's actually fully compatible with the Zapper light guns. So using it with a Zapper, that is 100% proof that it is a zero lag added device. So overall, this thing's great. It'll work with all Genesis 2 compatible RGB SCART or component video cables. The only issue I had is it wouldn't work with my RAD 2X. However, my RAD 2X is a pre-production unit that I used to do the launch video for that's been very badly beaten up over the years. It did work on a Genesis console though, so I'm not really sure what that means, but I don't really think I would call this a problem. I think if you already owned a RAD 2X, you might, which is fair, but because the RAD 2X was designed for Genesis consoles, period, not for fringe cases like this one. But I just don't understand why it wouldn't be compatible because all of the voltages, which I tested, the voltages on the RGB lines, as well as the C-Sync and uh, CVBS line. So just a quick aside, sync over composite video is there, but it's not composite video. It's just sync on that pin for things like the HD retrovision cables. 
everything is absolutely perfect. It all lines up great. So I'm honestly not really sure why that wouldn't work. Um, I think maybe, uh, I guess if you have one of these and you have a Rad 2X, give it a try. But I just wouldn't buy this with that in mind. I would just say, all right, I'm going to use it with whatever cables I got. But the video chip that Crick's added to it and the minor changes absolutely did the trick. So if you were looking for a plug and play solution for Famicom and top loading NES consoles, this would definitely be it to get RGB. The only thing to note is it will work with twin Famicoms, but I think you have to remove a lever. I'm 99% sure that's a no cut mod. You just have to unbolt it. So I really like this thing. I think it's absolutely awesome. Uh, and I definitely hope that Crix considers something like this for the original front loading NES as well, because it's definitely something I'd be interested in. If you're curious about the IGS Polygame Master or PGM, now is definitely the time to research it and look it up because there's a whole bunch of stuff available that really does a great job teaching you everything that you would need to know. The first that I would recommend is a video from Modern Vintage Gamer that just came out this week that does a really good job going over how it compares to a Neo Geo, how you could almost think of it as a Neo Geo 2, and its significance in the arcade market, and touches on a bunch of smaller technical, dif uh, technical details about it. If you want to go full nerd and check out a lot more of the technical deep dive, check out Nicole's post that was done a couple months ago, I believe, and also, Scarlet Sprites did a video on it a few years ago as well. So basically, if you wanted to know anything about the PGM, it's the perfect time to learn about it because you have all of these great resources here. So I wanted to put together a post about it. The only thing that absolutely annoyed me was that MVG was talking about if you want to try out some of the games, then go check out uh, MAME or FB Neo, I believe. And the software emulation there is pretty good. However, if you wanted to to purchase something to try these games out. The IGS Classic Arcade Collection for the Switch isn't in good shape, at least now. Maybe they'll patch it at some point in the future, but there's some sound issues, but also the aspect ratio is off, which is maddening to me. That is not a very complicated thing to fix. Uh, and it's, it's just very annoying that they would do that, which I just don't know if they don't care, if they don't understand how aspect ratio works, which if, uh, if you're kind of curious as well, check out this video from Displaced Gamers that completely understands or helps you understand why Street Fighter is not widescreen. Same reason why this these uh, games are not widescreen either. So I don't know. That kind of it kind of annoys me to no end. Not kind of very much when you have emulation collections that just do a terrible job and do not represent what the games are supposed to be like. But funny enough, that kind of brings us to what I'm about to talk about. Limited Run Games just posted a video talking about their carbon engine, and it seemed like episode one and what they're calling a carbon cast. So I'm sure there's going to be a, a series of videos talking about this, but essentially their carbon engine is aiming to be a way for developers to port classic games to modern platforms with accuracy and latency in mind, which is so awesome to hear that. And it's, it's just, you know, getting a port of an old game on a modern console that runs way worse than you could run it on your cell phone is maddening. I don't, it just drives me crazy. And the team at Limited Run Games is looking to, to solve that issue. And 
at the same time, they also announced a game that uses their carbon engine that's going to be released soon. It's the Game Boy game Trip World. But not only are they releasing that on modern platforms, and I believe also on an original Game Boy Color cartridge, they got the original creator to do a colorized DX version that uses the same color palette that they had in mind back in the day when they were considering making this game for the Game Boy Color. So I believe that's going to be the Game Boy Color version that's going to be sold. Those are going to be pre-orders were open for that in a few weeks, so I didn't really put that in here. But I just I think this has got the potential to be absolutely awesome. And I think there's a few signs that points to that this is more positive than anything else. Because, you know, just hypothetically speaking here, a company could totally, actually, I think I, I have a company in mind that would do something nefarious like this, but I could completely see a company building something like this for the purpose of churning out cheap, modern versions of games without thinking about accuracy and latency just to get that cash grab. There's one company in particular that I'm pretty sure would do something like that if they had the ability to. But watching this, I think it really gives you the sense that that's the opposite of what Limited Run Games is trying to do. And one huge sign of that is one of the first things they say in the video is, oh, well, we were thinking about doing it this way, but that's not really my expertise. So we're going to find somebody who, and let me tell you, in all of the businesses I've, I've been a part of, whether it was the consulting work that I used to do or just working for companies, whenever you have a group of devs that doesn't have crazy ego problems it's so much better for everybody you know they could have totally just taken the attitude like i've seen so many times over the years of no that's easy i could just do this myself we'll just do that we don't need anybody else's help that almost never works right almost well that's not the attitude they had right in the beginning of this video they were like okay well now we want to do this we're going to find this person and hey what if we talk to the original creator and hey what if we get the freaking guy who did the bleem emulator <laughs> like they really seem to be actually caring about this. And one of the people who they have working with them is Demetrius, Modern Vintage Gamer, which is kind of why I thought it was ironically funny that I was talking about how terrible that IGS uh, collection was because I could only imagine how annoyed Demetrius must have been when he tried that out thinking, I do a better job than this all the time. What are you selling this junk to people for? They also have Audi Sorley working for them, which is a, also something I thought was a good move. But one of the things that did kind of surprise me, and I don't know why this was so surprising to me, but Josh, uh, you know, from Limited Run Games said that it costs about $350,000 to port a retro game to modern platforms. And I assume a giant chunk of that is game licensing and all the stuff that it costs to actually put this out on modern platforms. But that kind of gives a few clues as to a few things. First, that's why so many classic games aren't just thrown up on modern platforms, even if they did do a good job, because you need the capital to be able to do it and to hope that you could get that money back. But it also kind of made me think like I could, I have absolutely been uh, in companies or worked with companies where it was, okay, well, we just barely got the budget to do this. We got some expenses that we didn't foresee, so we just got to finish it up in three weeks. And it's like, but the game's laggy. The audio doesn't work. The aspect ratio is wrong. Ah, we don't have the budget for this. We don't think it's going to sell enough to cover it, so you got to just put it out. That makes me so sad to think about, because how many crappy emulation ports have we seen over the years? Some amazing ones, too, by the way. That new Atari collection is pretty, you know, pretty impressive, but 
just saying, a lot of times I don't imagine it's the developer's fault. And if they only had tools that they could use to help make that part at least a little easier, I, I think we could have skipped off or skipped over some of those terrible releases. And that's what I hope the Carbon Engine will help do. Because at the very least, I do not think it is unreasonable to ask that when you pay for a game that's been ported to modern consoles, that it plays at least about what you would expect from a free software emulation solution that you could get. So, you know, I think at the very least that this has the potential to equal that. But you never know. There's a lot of things that could be added in. And yeah, it's always a balance, too. There's a lot of things that a lot of companies like to add into these modern releases that I don't think most gamers care about. But some do, and they like to make it flashy, and that takes away from other things. So at least if they have the core elements, you know, a way to interface the controllers without adding too much, hopefully, if any, latency, you know, a way to get them displayed properly. We don't need crazy CRT filters. It would be nice, but, you know, I would much prefer to see games presented in their exact original aspect ratio with no shimmer. It's not a huge ask. And I guess, you know, throw in a mode where you can get square pixels for people that grew up playing it on emulators and never knew that you should be stretching or squishing these. So I don't know. I guess I'm going off on a bit of a rant here. I just I see so much good, positive potential. And while, of course, you know, that I, I put the negative example in before of what could happen, I just don't get the sense. I don't get that sense at all that that's what's happening. I think this is nothing but positive. I think it's going to just lead to a bunch of really cool game ports. And, you know, we'll see what else happens with it. But I definitely am interested in it. I can't wait to try out Trip World, the DX colorized version of it. If the price is fair, I'll pick up the Game Boy Color version. And I, I just think it's very cool and wanted to talk about it here. And hopefully if you have time, it's a 20 minute long video. But if you're really interested, I would absolutely give it a chance because Limited Run Games has gotten some flack over the years. Some they probably deserved, like those stupid pound cables and a lot they didn't. And I just think give them a chance, right? There's really nothing bad could go, could happen by giving them a chance for this. Support them. Let's see what happens and balls in their court. But I think we're going to be impressed with what comes out of it. Before I go, I just wanted to mention a live stream I did last week that is now unlisted because it's pretty irrelevant. So I received a Jamix in the mail. I purchased it because I wanted to try it out on my arcade machines here. And I Im immediately ran into a couple of problems that are mostly all fixed. So I don't like to misrepresent products, um, you know, and just just a little bit of background. Jamix is a product that you could just buy. I just went and bought it. This wasn't a pre-release sample. This wasn't something I was supposed to keep under wraps. This is something that's already floating out in the wild. So I bought it. I plugged it in. I did all the live testing and I was just honest about all the stuff that I found and about some of the little hiccups I ran into, uh, which I would have never done if it was a pre-release prototype. But immediately afterwards, I was able to talk to the dev, actually, I think the next morning or that night or something, and the button mapping issues were fixed uh, pretty much immediately. Still kind of working on the audio stuff, and there was one other thing I wanted to follow up on. So I just wanted to let anybody know, if you were curious about what happened with that, I had mostly good things to say about it. I just ran into a few things that I think are pretty much fixed. So I will follow up with either another live stream or just a short social media video or something on it. But overall, it's a pretty cool platform. It's got a lot of promise to it. I just uh, I want to make sure I get correct info out because, you know, if I find a problem with something and it's not fixed, I have no problem looking in the camera and being like, this thing's broke. 
but it's not the case here at all. There were things that only really applied to my setup or just a few other people's that now aren't even a thing anymore. So I will follow up with that. But if you have any questions on specific things you want me to test on the Jamix, let me know in the comments and I will try my best to take notes of all of that and do a follow-up live stream at some point with the new firmware, maybe with a mod or two that I, I want to mess with and see what we can do with it. But anyway, just wanted to give everybody an update. That's it for this week, though. As always, thank you so much to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to people who support in any way possible, because it is your support that is keeping all of this work going, and I couldn't do it all without you. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.